0: Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's pre-annotators. I'm Dave Buesen, founder and editor in chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today, a very exciting interview. I'm joined by the creative team of The Keeper, a new horror graphic novel out now from Abrams Comics Arts. We'll be talking to Tana Narive, Dew, Stephen Barnes, and Marco Finnegan. The Keeper is the story of Aisha, a young black child who loses her parents, moves in with her grandmother, and then loses her grandmother to disease. Before passing though, the grandmother summons a dark spirit the titular keeper, to watch over her, but at great cost. It's a really, really interesting horror graphic novel, very suspenseful, um, with a lot of deeper meaning. And we're going to talk about that. We're talking up front about where and when that meaning connects. So I have questions there. But first, let's start here. Um, uh, Tanana Nariv, Stephen, this was initially a screenplay. Yes. Uh, How did you go about shifting and adapting, sort of both in mindset and in form, for a graphic novel because i know i mean i listen to your podcast about this i've heard you talk about it definitely there's some you know it's it's emotional right you wanted to get this thing made um that wasn't happening in the way you wanted but then you this this door opens so kind of how was the, how did that so shift manifest let
1: tanana reeve take the lead on this one go for it huh?
2: yeah because i still remember the feeling like a kick in my stomach mm-hmm. when Steve and I were shopping at Best Buy. And our, we saw that our manager was calling and we thought it was good news <laughs> yeah. and it was bad news that no, they weren't going to do it. And yeah, it was a, it was a real heartache uh, And in terms of transition, it feels more like a blessing because it's not like we got rejected on the screenplay front. So we said, oh we should try to shop this as a graphic novel. If only we were not that creative about it. It was solely because our editor, John Jennings, who had read it as a treatment, already loved it and had read it as a script, he thought it would make a great graphic novel. For me, it was kind of a mysterious world. I'd never written one before. Steve had some experience in comics. I did not have any. So when it comes to the actual, physical acts of transitioning it. The emotional transition was great. It was just like, oh, okay, great. This unexpected thing has happened. Love it. Let's do it. But in terms of the physical transformation, all of that credit goes to the artist sitting here, Marco Finnegan, who who literally took that script, took that script and reconceptualized it visually. I think even before the ink was dry, he was working on it for the contracts. He was already working on it Off to the races.
1: Um, a graphic novel is there's less gap between a script and a graphic novel than there is between a story or a book and a movie that that with words on the page, you have one word following another word. And that's all you've got. And then you go through various transderivational searches is, is the term where you try to figure out what does this word mean? And then you have the gap between the words, which is where you're having an emotional response. Like, you know, music is what happens between the notes. Story is what happens between the words. Okay? When you think about transferring a book to the screen, you lose interiority. You can go much more easily into what the characters are thinking and feeling in a book than you can the screen. But what you gain is the ability to do a dozen things at one time that different every actor can be doing a different bit of business plus there's music plus there's sound effects plus there's stuff happening in the background and there are things that are happening with the set and this and that that the reader that the audience is taking it all at the same time to create an effect okay now a graphic novel or comic book then would be like the storyboards that create that movie to a degree so what we had to do if a script is a template or a, a blueprint for a movie, then we had to acknowledge that our artist was going to be director, casting director, special effects, art director, all those things, and to create <laughs> create a, a, an outline, a structure that would make him say, feel, oh, I know what the visual expressions would be, mm-hmm. that would give the sense of dynamism and depth, to these words. And luckily, Marco just jumped right in with both feet.
2: And I know we've like handed it over to him, but one last thing I want to say before Marco jumps in is that one of the things that gives away that this was first conceived of as a script is I think there are only a couple of times you hear Aisha thinking, are <laughs> mm. you seeing? a sure. thought bubble yeah. because there are no thought bubbles in the script. I mean, everything had to be what you see, what she does. And it was sort of an afterthought in the screenplay. We're like, well, wow. There are a lot of panels where there's like no dialogue, there's like no thinking. Yeah. So we actually sprinkled some of that in, but that's one of the giveaways.
0: That makes sense. So Marco, your thoughts. That's a lot of pressure, Marco. Yeah, like that. You know, that's a, that's a lot of roles. How'd you take no, it? My on?
3: head gets bigger every time these two talk about me. It's,
0: <laughs> it's ridiculous. No,
3: and, and, I,
1: I'm glad, and I'm glad you deserve. And it's, honestly, and it's a giant, you deserve that as it
3: is, so it can't get much bigger or I'll start toppling over. <laughs> uh, so no, but the screenplay came in. You know, it came in. I told the story, but it came in, and it was so visual. Everything was there, everything was clear, you know I knew the tone, I knew I saw everything right away. So I had a really easy job in terms of translating because sometimes I did a couple of adaptations. I've adapted a couple of novels and some pitches for other novels. And what this had that though that those had it to some extent, but I'd have to dig for it was it the visual setups were all there. Like everything was described enough. everything was uh, they guided me exactly where I needed to go. And then, then it was just, you know, breaking it down into comic language. So, cause comics are so cool because it's this, it's not a movie, you know, it's not a novel that's more interior inside the con- the character's head, but you also don't have action in the way that a movie does. So you, it's, it's like this cool hybrid between movies and books as that's how I think of it. So you have a visual language of comics that you have to do so, you know, finding the page turn moments, you know, when, how can I structure it so that it makes sense rather than just drawing till I run out of room and then having to turn a page. So getting those beats and that pacing and breaking those scenes into that pacing, that was the fun part. And the way that it broke down was I just took the screenplay and I read it a couple of times. And then I just started doing thumbnails, like really rough thumbnails and break them into beats. Like, and it ended up almost lining up to like, every page of screenplay was like two two and a half pages of comics so some stuff was edited reworked moved around and then about halfway through the process it was originally supposed to be a 120 page comic i got ha- about you know halfway through the through the script and i had 94 pages of comic <laughs> uh, left or done and i was only halfway done so i thankfully you know abrams has just been wonderful like we'll just keep going keep going till you're done and then we'll see so I think I originally landed at like 190 something pages and I'm like, okay, that's too much. We need to cut it back to like 140. And then, so we, we had a nice big group meeting and we kind of cut decided what we could cut and what we can consolidate. And we cut it back to like, I think we got, it's like 140 something. And they're like, well, you know what, how much do you need? And I think we ended up at like 160 something, maybe 170. So they,
2: 66 67. yeah.
3: So, so they gave us the room to play with, and uh, that was the trick. Yeah, it's a good sized book, and uh, so nice hardcover. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the trick of just turning it into a comic. You know, the comic language is so specific. You know, and what you can and can't do. Like we, you know, jump scares can't happen at the bottom of the page. They got to happen on the page turn. You know, so any of those that were written into the screenplay, we had the kind of. Either figure another way to create a mood or time them and pace them so that it's on the page turn, you know, so you turn the page and something happens or you and it can't even really be on the facing page. Sometimes like it has to be like for more effect. It's got to be the page turn. So just stuff like that, which is, you know, I live for that stuff. That's my my favorite part of comics is is breaking the story down and and pacing it. all the drama and stuff. Yeah, that's that stuff is just the work.
1: In, in my opinion, the, the two most important resources for the creation of this were, first of all, Alan Moore's The Watchman,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which I consider to be the greatest comic book ever written, uh, just in terms of every, all that he accomplished. And the other is Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics. Mm. the To understand the visual language of comics and then to take that script and to try to say, well, this is... Written using the best our best understanding of the cinematic language How does this translate it's not going to be exactly the same comics are going to be able to do different things There's some things they cannot do But there are going to be some things that they can Do where a person can spend as much time on one panel as they want to to absorb it whereas in movies you control the timing With which they move from one image to another and understanding this what you're trying to do is to have a series of emotions This this image and these words created emotion the next set of images and words will then tweak that emotion build on it Let it lift it up or 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 drop it. What is the arc of emotion you want people to feel? trying to understand that in a way that does not interrupt the flow, the natural flow of just, you know, once upon a time, there was a little girl, um, is, you know, it's an amazing challenge in in an art form, which I think has become far more mature over the last two generations.
2: The hardest part I think was when, because Marco drew the drew the panels based on the literal screenplay. And at a certain point, the publisher was like, oh, we actually need a comic script. <laughs> for the rest of the team to work from. So we did it kind of backwards where I had to then go back to what he had drawn and basically, cause I'm like, well, here it is. Now we have to explain what's here. So Aisha touches the door, you know, I'm just like writing the script based on the art instead of the other way around. Yeah, so
1: we've done the <laughs> script in Writer Duet, uh, which is a terrific piece of online software uh, and it has different templates. It has a template for cinema, it has one for television, and it has one for graphic novels and comics. I actually didn't use that. No, you didn't?
2: No. I think it was just a Google Doc. Was that. it? Yeah, it was a I
1: Google Doc. So, okay. I remember yeah. you
2: sent it to me,
1: yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. I've never, so we, we, we so that, that means that what happened is that we experimented with, with Writer Duet, and then transferred it to Google Doc. Or I'm just lying my butt off trying <laughs> to sound smart, than I
2: don't Different companies approach comic scripts in different ways, so it really yeah, is for like, sure. like how how Abram's do comics. Right.
3: And I think when I, you know, I, I've written a few comics and it's funny because going at it from, I always draw first. So like when I sold my first graphic novel, I just drew it, you know, and I drew it in rough stick figure form. And then the editor's like, hey, this is great. We want to read the rest of the script. And I was like, uh, there is no script. This is, yeah. what's a script? You know, so I had to go, so I had the same challenge. Is going back and making a script for the editors to kind of mark up and change, and so I think that's what's neat. I saw uh, Mike Mignola talk on Saturday at his documentary, and he was talking about oh, yeah. how he doesn't he writes with images, like he you know he can't he can't describe the way that leaves blow at a certain time to evoke a certain mood, but he can draw the picture, and mm. I think you know those kind of thoughts are where. Some of us think in words, you know, beautifully, like you two, and some of us think in images, and some of us think, you know, in some hybrid of the two. And I think getting the script where all the words were so clearly written and there was such a you communicated the visuals so well it was like candy for me because I was like, "Well, I can already see this," and I, you know, it got to a point where I knew that I wasn't paying I paid attention to the dialogue for facial expressions and all that stuff. But the mood was just there. Like I don't think we ever sat down. Like, okay, at this point we need, we needed to be no. this type of mood. At this point, it was just you know we were all kind of on the same page. And then when our colors yeah, came you were in, just
2: off to the races.
1: Mark. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: and then Alex came in to color. Alexandria came in to do the colors. And that again, going back to what Manola said, is that we don't have sound, but we have color, right? So like using color, the color palette is almost like the score of the comic Mm. you know that's That's and i didn't even realize that that's what like we were thinking mood but i i never made the comparison until i heard him say it and i think that's something that is the unsung hero is what they came up with you know john helped kind of guide where the colors were going to go but then alexandria kind of just took off and uh you know the book works in black and white and the stories there and some of the mood and the the pacing's there but that color layer is just that little bit uh extra you know it's just like you know you can watch a movie with no sound and it still works but if you have the right soundtrack to it
1: if it's good right if it's a good, good it's, movie right. you can turn the sound off and follow everything that's happening
3: right and then a great movie if you have a good sound just makes that experience better and i think exactly and i think so sound dialogue
0: make it better right i just watched uh halloween for the first time <laughs> the john carver well, classic know, i'm trying know? to i'm trying to yeah i'm trying to catch up on my my oh depravity my or my my absence of horror movies and uh, I'm trying incredible. to imagine that now with no sound because the soundtrack is so, so right. central to those right. moments. Yeah, John,
1: um, John Carpenter and Alan Holworth's, uh minimalistic sound uh, musical track. Just mm-hmm. one of yeah. You know, the original house for Halloween is out in Pasadena. Oh,
2: yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. we posed in front of it. Front of it. Of oh, yeah. very nice. <laughs> <laughs> we're that nerdy about horror. So yes, we are. I you, were wondering and I, you know what? I
3: wasn't either. Like, I wasn't super into horror until. And this, I think, is another feather in your hats. If you guys don't have enough feathers in your hats. But um, was when I were doing this, I was like, oh, man, they're like horror geniuses I'm working with. And I'm over here, like, trying to remember the last scary movie I saw. And so I went down like anything that, you know, Tanari would ever say or tweet or anything. I was like, I got to watch that. So, you know, just just so I can have something to say, something I can contribute. And I didn't... (laughs) What you did so well is that I didn't know horror could be this emotional, like what you guys Mm. did with The Keeper. You know, I knew that it could be scary and it could be spooky and it could be uncomfortable, but you guys made it personal, I think. Like, I think it was... There was a sadness to it, but it wasn't. You know, we talked about it before. It wasn't like that. Wasn't the star of the show? It was the sadness.
0: It is interesting because you know, in, in horror, there's an expectation of, for some comic fans, right, the jump scares and these sorts of things and tricks that don't necessarily translate. The, certainly don't translate the same way from movie to graphic novel, right? Mark, you're yeah. talking about? Oh, it's tough. how you have to pace yeah. it very differently. Um, so the horror, yes, I think a lot of times, for me, definitely as a reader, came through. In, yes, that sadness in the emotional journey of Aisha, who goes through these horrific things, right? She loses her parents, then she loses her grandmother and is in such a a sort of childlike state of not even childlike, just like a state of like sort of fearful, right? Of institutions of other people who might come in that like she's living in this house with the dead grandmother. Like it's really sad, scary stuff. Like that's actually more horrific than to me. Than the literal monster right Mm. that shows up
2: yeah that's Um, true
0: which i yeah it's kind of that that feeling of there's a specificity there that can feel more universal just sort of your heart bleeds for this kid right trapped in the scenario um let's talk bouncing off that about the monster so this was this is what we're talking about right up front so there is you know there's the keeper right there's this kind of shadowy monster and and marco i want to talk a little bit about the design but the one thing i really want to focus on first is so there's this shadow being that appears to watch over aisha and her family and it's at this great cost of human sacrifice and and it's like it's it's representing i think a few things um but one thing that i was you know kind of the least clear on was aisha's experience is her grandmother's dying wish is for this keeper to protect her and one thing i was unclear on is why is it so sort of cursed right in terms of what you wanted to convey with this monster the, the idea, the wish is benevolent, right? It's a grandmother trying to help her, her granddaughter. Um, but the way the monster manifests is anything but. Uh, what was we, key to you in the representation of that?
1: Well, on one level, you're talking about symbology. And so the monster is in that sense, this a symbol of several different things. Um, but what I insisted on you know, and and T'nodori wrote the, you know, she had the original idea. We developed it together. Then she wrote the script. Then I got in and rewrote it with her. And then, you know, it was like that. So her name goes first on the book because she was in the in, in the pilot position in, in that sense. Um, but what I wanted to know from her is, well, let's base this monster on, beha- on either behavior of an animal or behavior of natural forces. So that we have some sense of the physics. Of it some sense that it relates to our world as we understand it and one of the things we know is there's no action without an equal and opposite reaction you don't get something for nothing that doesn't it's not the way our world works so if this monster is doing things for her what does it want what does it eat what, are, what is its life cycle? You have to have the sense that it existed before Aisha was born and will it might exist after she's dead. That this thing, where did it come from? What does it want? How does it do what it does? So that's the thing. This, it, In that sense, that it symbolizes what is it that we will do to survive? And the truth is that when it comes right down to it, the... The thing to count on is that people will do anything to survive. They will sacrifice their ethics. They will sacrifice their values. They will do anything to survive. When you do more than anything to survive, that is the unusual thing, the thing that people look at and say, this is wonderful. So when the grandmother makes a deal with a genie, deal with a demon to protect her granddaughter, she knew it would be a great price to do this. And so Aisha's, Aisha's conundrum, is you know, what is she willing, is she willing to risk her soul to save her life?
2: Right, at what point is she the monster? I think is the question. And in terms of the conception of it, Steve and I had a lot of conversations where he was really pressing me about the history of the creature and the relationship of the creature to their family and, and, and even predating their family, which was stuff that I had not really thought about. All I really knew at the beginning was that the first sign of it was ants, ants symbolizing decay, right? <laughs> you know, and death, like you, you, if you fall down dead on a sidewalk, you're gonna get covered in ants. Um, so it feels like death, looks like death, but then they congeal into a larger form. And I knew that what it ate or what powered it was life force. So it would start by killing all the plants. Just suck the life force out of plants. Then it moves on to the, I mean, I don't want to be too spoilery, but it moves on to other life forms. You know, at one point, Aisha's even trying to feed it like uh, rodents, to, 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 hoping it yeah. will, you know, keep it from eating other things. <laughs> other things. But it, this appetite is just so voracious. It gets more and more voracious as time goes on, and she has no control over it. So this thing is there to protect her. But that's it. Yeah. That's the that's the end of the commitment.
1: You see, and that's the terrible reality of life. You cannot live without killing. That you can be, you know, a member of the Jane group that that eats nothing but fruit and walks on nothing but rocks, and you're still going to kill with every breath you take. There's literally no way around it. That's the cycle of life. Um, and so all we did was take one little piece of that and make it more specific, more terrible, more two-dimensional in, in, in a sense we heightened its appetites because that's the dance between life and death the thing that makes human life such a tragedy mm-hmm. in some ways
2: i want to stick a feather in marco's hat because i we were at um the world uh world con as guests of honor recently and and someone else there was the legendary uh, comics artist gene ha and i was sitting next to him and just I had him out. on the
0: show uh, a few weeks ago actually. No yeah, really i pulled yeah. out my
2: phone like a proud mother and say oh look i wrote a book my first graphic novel here's the <laughs> yeah. cover and he just like kept staring and staring and sinking into it and i thought at first he was being so polite <laughs> <laughs> cuz everybody must do that you know all the time but he finally said he just said such great things about the creature design in particular he said the hardest thing is the creature design and he thought that Marco had really captured both the ambiguity and the specificity in the same image that was necessary to make this truly frightening. So take it away, Marco. How'd you come up with this great creature design? Well, I'm a genius. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, we know this. No,
3: no, and, and <laughs> I'm really not. And I love that. I just like to hear that Gene Haas story over and over and over again <laughs> Because uh, he's one of my heroes. But uh, yeah. no, and I think, I think I came at it with, you know, after reading the script a couple of times, is that I was trying to make it seem that it's the equivalent of a monster. That's that feeling you get when you walk into a dark room. You know, what is that like? And and my son, who's eighteen and he's a film major and he's a big horror buff, his big thing that we always talk about is when we watch a movie. He's always disappointed by the creature design because he's you know it's built up, it's built up, and then you finally see it. And you're like. Rubber suit, you know, or whatever it is, you know, it always takes him out of it. And he's, you know, he's in film school, so he knows everything. Um, and so we always talked about that. So when I was designing this, is I didn't want it to be. There's no way that the way that it was paced, there was no way that I was going to be able to create a design that once it's seen in the light is going to be is going to do it justice, especially without movement, right? Because the whole thing with the design is that there's things moving on it constantly. And so without that, I was just trying to give enough so that hopefully everybody who reads it gets a different idea in their imagination of what's happening in there. It's like that Quentin Tarantino thing, like when he did Reservoir Dogs and they doesn't show the guy get his ear cut off, but you hear it, you know, and so it's more visceral because whatever you're imagining is worse than whatever you could see. And so that was my hope was that if I keep it ambiguous, ambiguous enough, then your imagination will fill in the rest, right? Because that's the big thing about comics is that you get that closure and that's something that novels do is that you can describe something and it's always going to be scarier in your head. So trying for that was my my goal, was just trying to have it be that thing that's in the dark that you're not quite sure it could be, you know, a bunch of towels or it could be this monster that's going to eat you.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was- Yeah, and I think the less we can as readers put our finger on exactly what it is or exactly right. where well, it is. Stephen, King, scarier it is. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Stephen King says that, HP uh, Lovecraft did, would do that. And there stood in the doorway, a thing, which if I were to describe it would blast sure. your soul. And he says, that's bull. I mean, it, it, it's that it isn't that you can't describe a monster. It's that no matter what you describe, it's not as bad as the personalized nightmare of the reader that if you said in there i threw open the door and there stood a six foot cockroach you'd say oh my god a six foot cockroach well at least it wasn't a seven foot cockroach you know so (laughs) but if you keep it just a little bit vague then people fill in the horror with their own private nightmares and that is always going to be worse than a generalized you know than, than anything that you make whether it's cgi or a rubber suit or a rod puppet or anything like that but we did design we to be completely honest we designed this to be the storyboards of a movie that has not been made such that if somebody were to want to make it it could be made at a very good price it's right. not an expensive movie we know exactly how you do the effects
2: shadows if you have You
1: know shadows and rod puppets you know and it's indirect you never get a clear view of what it is that it is until it's well I don't want, I don't want to don't want to say that but it's all—it's mostly suggestion and indirect and shadow and, and seeing pieces of it before, so that your mind puts together the whole thing in its own way. You know, like the, in the movie Alien, which is about as frightening a monster as I've ever seen. You never saw the whole thing until the very, very, very end, and then you—you you finally got a, a few frames of the full monster. Uh, up until that point, it's like, what am I looking at? What is it doing to people? We just don't know. And the lack of clarity, horror in that sense, is it thrives in the dark. As soon as you turn on the light and you see it clearly, that's not a horror movie anymore. It's an adventure movie. That's aliens, not alien. And that's not about fear. It's about suspense and action. So we wanted fear.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I So one thing I did want to touch on just with the monster as well is, you know, upfront we were talking about... You know how rewarding it is when people get it. So I want to I want to potentially try to validate here that I maybe got something, <laughs> maybe I didn't, and you'll tell me. Um, so if I have to guess at it, uh, the keeper here. It, it felt to me there was a quote, and I I don't remember if it was yours or not. It's in the um the Horror Noir, which is the the documentary you did, Taran Reeve, through um you know you produced and and that's on Shutter. And I watched this recently. It's a great doc. I highly recommend it. We'll include a link here in the show notes. There's a quote in there that said, "Through the specific is how we get to the universal." And there was a specificity of Aisha's fear of falling into government programs specifically, right, for orphans and kind of how scary that is and the the sense of like those not actually being good places to go. Um, That felt to me like a specific thing that I have not experienced, but connected deeply to universal themes of like just like tenants rights and how scary it can be to feel like you're going to lose your housing and just like the very broad mistrust of institutions. So am I tapping into something there with the keeper or is that just one of many angles that this thing could represent? Oh,
2: no. That's one of the, the underpinnings of the okay. story is it's not just housing insecurity. I mean, that's one level of it, of course, that I think maybe a lot of people can relate to, uh, especially in this economy. <laughs> but, but that abandonment, not having anyone to take care of you and not feeling like you can approach the institutions that ostensibly are there to protect you. Like if you're in trouble on TV, you go to a police officer. For Aisha, the police represent threat because she represents threat to them. So this officer who confronted her was not seeing a child going through her things in a shed. He was seeing a burglar, right? There there
1: is a version of the keeper that I see very clearly where all the characters are white. I said I know exactly how we tell the story. It would have some, a few differences, but most of it remains exactly the same, and you can make it about class or survival instead of race. Right. So ultimately it's about survival, uh, except that you have the additional thing, that the institutions that, that Aisha would fall into were not made for her benefit, nor were they administered and constructed by people who necessarily saw her full humanity. You can't look at the history of black people in America without realizing these people were not viewed as being fully human. They were viewed as being less than and then treated that way. So whatever her grandmother felt about, that might have felt about, you just don't wanna be in an institution, you wanna be with family, is going to be accelerated by the fact that in addition, you don't wanna be an institution run by the very people who created you know, Jim Crow and segregation and slavery that that it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that maybe maybe we have not got all the bugs out of that system (laughs) maybe just maybe we have not corrected some of its its assumptions about us you know and so it's going to be even worse and even if you as A reader think you know something that's an exaggeration as of the year 2000 all the institutions are fine we're over it it still makes sense that a grandmother having been born in 1940 or 1930 whatever would have the feelings she has and convey to Aisha the message she did which would then have Aisha not trust those institutions so whether you think yeah she's right you don't want to be in those institutions or you think, my God, it's tragic, those institutions are exactly what Aisha needs, and because of our history in this country, she cannot see it, and the grandmother could It doesn't matter, it works either way. So when we think through these things and ask ourselves, what is the impact of this scene, this image, this thematic going to be on a black reader, on a white reader, on a liberal reader, on a conservative reader, on this or that, what you want is to go beyond all of that to the humanity of a child alone who needs to know who can I trust to help me survive. That is universal. So that that, that quote about, when you go deeply enough into the specific, you emerge at the universal.
2: And I like to feel like, and Marco has a great story about this too, I want you to tell. But I, I wanted to say first, before I uh, hand it over to you, Marco, that I feel like there's a, a there's hope inside this story too. There's sadness, but there's also hope and a little bit of irony because I mean, I don't think it's too spoilery to say that if you look at the book, there was a place she could have gone, right? <laughs> there, there was a, there was a, a place right there. Sure. She yeah. could have gone, uh, but she didn't know it, and her grandmother didn't know it, and and so, as a child will do, who's just trying to cope and wants to listen to what her grandmother said, she goes to this extraordinary length to try to stay out of the system.
1: Yeah. What's the story with Marco to tell?
2: Marco, um, your upbringing, your mom, the things that she used to tell you. Yeah. So I grew up,
1: you know,
3: Mexican-American and, uh, you know, single mom. And the big thing was, you know, we were always told, like, if you get hurt, don't call an ambulance. You know, call me. I'll come get you. Uh, If you're in, you know, she worked nights a lot. And so we lived in an apartment. And so if anything ever happened, we were to go to a neighbor, we were not to go to a cop. And I didn't understand it till much later. And finally, I asked her, I said, what was what was all about? Like, you know, and she said, because if they come over to the house to the apartment at 11 o'clock at night, and you're nine years old, there by yourself, they're going to take you away. Like that's her that was her big fear. And uh, was that, you know, you're going to CPS is going to get called. Uh, If you go to school, and you say, you know, that, oh, my mom works nights and I'm home by myself, don't tell the teacher that, you know, those kind of things were always, you know, a little secret that we had, except amongst other people who were in the similar situation. So the, you know, the having the family across the hall that looked out for you was what I grew up in, you know, is that you, you were raised by your found family of whichever adults your parents trusted, if any, and then the other kids. And that, you know, so having that part in it was huge to me when I read it, because I was like, yeah, I. I 100% would, would have done what Aisha did.
1: Like I, well, you know, know. this is the power, isn't this the power of art to take an emotion that we're feeling and communicate it, put it in the matrix of a story. So it communicates to other people who had that shared experience, but also people who love horror, let's say, or love good storytelling, if we can create a good that good story, they then have to enter into the mind of the character such that by the end of that story, they have shared your experience a little bit. It actually helps to create a bridge of humanity, of shared humanity. So, you know, I Tynodary kind of hinted at this that that we don't tend to write downer stories. I mean, short stories sometimes. I've written a few evil little short stories. But the longer the work is, the more likely I am to want to take the... the reader or the viewer on a roller coaster ride i'm going to take you i'm going to start you here i'm going to take you down into hell but i'm going to bring you back out so if we do that then it's like the reader gets to live another life and hopefully by doing that they say ah these people are human just like me i would react that way if i were in that situation and it it actually helps create that world create that country that's going to be better for all of our grandchildren
0: yeah. No, it definitely feels lived in. I mean, it feels very, very realistic. I think it's it's visually very realistic. Marco, I was fascinated by you talking about um on one of the interviews about, you know, you had like a 3D model of like the brownstone and just like, you know, the actual like flooring, like that stuff is is really interesting behind the scenes in terms of how it comes across so realistically. Another piece that I think really sells, you know, the realness of it is you have connections here to the 1943 Detroit uh race riots. So you have some history right in terms of like American history, but then it's also generational trauma because it's aisha's family going back till that that's where that we sort of learn that the keeper has been around with this family through the generations and it becomes now it's not just aisha's story it's a story about her family trying to make it through these various you know sort of very difficult turning points in in their family experience um on semi-related marco did you know that this graphic novel and your, uh, I'm sure you know this, but I'm phrasing it this way. Your YA graphic novel, Lizard and a Zoot Suit, both feature 1943 uh, racial tension uh, history. Because <laughs> you have yeah. the LA Zoot Suit riots <laughs> yeah. in Lizard and a Zoot Suit and the 1943 Detroit riots here. Was that like, I don't know, was that even in your head when you were making it? no
3: <laughs> it wasn't my until <laughs> till just now honestly okay uh, and because 1943 la seems so far removed from 1943 detroit you know but sure. very similar now that i see it now now i yes i meant i'm i meant to make them write this screenplay for me because it would <laughs> okay no okay. no it, but and i think that that but the lizard book does have a lot of that you know the the found family kind of stuff too and i think uh i think growing up the way i did it in an apartment like that stuff's normal you know like it's it's abnormal to me the way my children are being raised with you know two parents and a nice <laughs> a nice suburban right. house and yeah you know they don't want for a whole lot and you know and we're both home at night and we tuck them in and all that stuff you know that i tell my God wife bless i tell my <laughs> wife like you know this is not what i imagined it could be and you know and thankfully she came from a family that's like that where you know they parents were home they tucked them in you know and so i had a role model but not not something that i thought was attainable so Aisha's life is closer to what i imagine life being cuz you kind of you you kind of decide when you're a kid what life is you know and then the rest of your adult life you're either trying to prove that theory or surprised that it's not proven and so i think i always when I think of life, I think of like Aisha, you know, and I don't think, oh, yeah, I'm, I live in Temecula and it's safe and nothing's going to harm me. You know, at night, I still go in and make sure my kids are breathing and I nudge them. And, you know, my oldest is in college and I text them every night to, you know, and wait for the reply. You know, that's kind of that right. thing that's always exactly. there. And, you know, why is it 3 a.m., you know, I'll wait up till 3 a.m. for him to say good night, you know, that kind of stuff. So. It's very different, but I think that was the hard thing reading the first time. And I told them before, the, you know, my wonderful writers that, I, you know, they made me tear up the first time I read it. Like within the first pages, I was like, no, that's not cool. That's not, that's not a good, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's not right. You know, right off the bat, you know, I wanted more hamburger and ketchup. Happy faces, you know? <laughs> And uh, and so and then there's that part that's my favorite part because when she makes it at lunch, you know, when she makes that thing at lunch, because it's such a like a knife in the heart, you know. That's the stuff that I love. And the monster stuff's always cool to draw, and stuff exploding is always cool. But being able to get that little ketchup happy face on there again was, yeah. you know, super
1: cool. You know, uh, Reeve just turned to me at one point and said that a particular scene that Marco mentioned was me. But what I want to make clear is that yeah, I. I have, you know, 3 million words and 30 books and work and tell them this that And and I am in awe of my wife. I'm in Mm -hmm. awe of what she can do in terms of taking an emotion and structuring story where the twists and turns of the plot amplify a worldview, you know, and that having that initial emotion and then using the tropes of horror that she understands so well that she's literally a scholar in that I'm what I did. She said, "If I created that scene, I honestly feel like I was channeling her. I was literally trying to think: How does Tinnari think about these things? How does she do these things? And it it worked out pretty well, you know. In that in that sense, I'm 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 trying to learn.
2: (laughs) Well, we're always trying to get it right. (laughs) We're always learning from each other. And of course, this whole project has been a huge learning experience for me. It's exposed me to entirely new world. Even just an interview like this and media like this." These are not interviews that i've done before so it's always True. great to to learn new ways to create new ways to reach audiences and tell stories it's that's
1: so there's somebody awesome. listening to this who has a comic project that they need to put us on because <laughs> yeah. I, I i'm i'm now understanding so much more about how to do this i think we're just getting us, better
3: me too by the way am
1: yeah. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely, Marco. Absolutely. I'm, I'm part of that us just for
3: everybody listening. For hire. There you go. Yeah, Let's get a movie deal. I'm gonna, you're be gonna so do the jealous. I'm gonna be so jealous when you guys make another graphic novel with somebody else. I'm like
2: mm, <laughs> that's
3: fine. <laughs> that's fine. You
1: went well, that way. <laughs> I'm
3: gonna, you know, we'll we'll see about that next time. I'm, gonna be, you petty. Know I'm gonna be petty. It's not gonna it's not <laughs> yeah, gonna be I good.
1: understand. <laughs> be, be petty. Go
3: you know, you fight fight for what you want,
1: man. I sure do.
3: But no, they, I mean, and I think that you guys have such a strong visual language that where you said, you know, you're channeling Tananari when you're writing, you know, her, I'm channeling you guys when I'm drawing. Like, I don't, there was never a moment where I was like, well, I could do, I can come up with a better idea. You know, it was how can I mine this really good idea for this other format? You know, it was never like. Well, that
1: makes me an ideal collaborator. Right.
3: It, it was never yeah. like. Well, this will never work as a comic. Like it's gonna. It's like this is super fun to figure out how. Because at the end, it's just a good story. It's just a great story. Not even good story. It's just a great story. So then it's just a matter of putting those, putting all that good stuff into a different format. And so, well, if a
1: story, the success of a story is when the person puts the story down, or closes the book, or turns off the television, or walks out of the theater, they have a particular emotion. There's something that they're feeling and so when you shift from one medium to another you might have to change what you did because this this medium will have a different way of accessing this feeling so you can't hold on to an idea that you had for a story when you change it to a movie and you can't hold on to an idea that you had a movie when you turn it into a graphic novel because that succession of images or and and events might not produce the same emotion when if if it's a still image or it's a drawing as compared to a photograph or it's a series of photographs as opposed to a paragraph what is it that you're doing and everything you do has to be in service to production of an emotional experience for the consumer so you know that that notion of trying to have enough respect for your collaborators to leave room for the actors to find the subtext or the director's visual sense to create that, or the artist to find ways to use light and shadow and color to create emotional changes, a succession of emotional changes that leaves an experience. When you close the book, you say, wow, I've had an, ex- an emotional experience. That's what you want. And you have to be willing to trust your partners to get help you get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, no, this was definitely a a hug your kids book for me, like, like, they closed the book. And it was like, a, I need to find my kids and give them a hug kind of book. Yeah. Um, and then it was on i mentioned, you know, I had to go back and it was on the kind of a second read through where I got a little more cerebral. It was like thinking about, okay, what is this? What is the, symb- the symbology of this, but just at a base, emotional core level, I was like, like yeah, like I I want to go hug my kids right now. Like this is beautiful. This is sad stuff. But then, you yeah, know, like you said, more like, that's the Exactly does. what we want. Oh, that's good. That's good. No, but like you said, like it's not you know it's not a total downer. It's not just you know just that all the time. I want to be clear about Although that? Although it's partial downer. It's a partial downer. It's definitely there. <laughs> okay, cool. Right so on, we're right like right at bat. time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it hits hard. Um, we're we're at about time, so I want to give you all a, a minute here to talk about what do you have coming up next. What do you want people to check out um you know where's people find your stuff let's start with uh marco let's start with you
3: okay uh i'm on twitter probably way too much at marco 949 i keep saying i'm taking a break and then i come back on there and then uh i'm right now i'm drawing the new 007 series for dynamite and then Yay. uh so about four issues into that <laughs> Thank you. And then uh, doing something that hasn't been announced that should come out in January or February. And then after that, who knows? We'll see. So that's the next year. Right.
1: Um, I'm, you know, with, with my wife, we're working on classes on writing, our Life Writing Premium program, the our soulmate class to, you know, for people who want to find true love. In life, um, the Tai Chi, an online Tai Chi workshop that I've been, you know, basically hoping to do for decades, um, and just got my partner Larry Niven and mentor Larry Niven and I just got the cover story for Analog. It's called Sacred Cow. Just came out. Uh, very proud of that one. It has a wicked solution to a murder mystery. Um, and other than that, uh, just finished a story called Mummy Dearest. That uh, somebody suggested could be turned into uh, a short film and is is interested in talking to me about that. And aside from that, it's just, you know, raise my family, work out and work, and just, you know, give thanks every day that I'm able to spend so much of my life doing the thing that I wanted to do when I was a kid.
2: Yep. Working on another feature treatment that will either be a movie or who knows, maybe a graphic novel someday. And I have a short story collection coming out next year called The Wishing Pool. And other stories, and a novel about a haunted reformatory called *The Reformatory*, coming out next summer.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Is the wishing pool? Do you know? I, there was a Levar Burton. Uh, yeah. reads is, is that it's the one? That okay, story. yeah, listen to that, not yes. that. long ago. Yeah, yeah we it's had
1: Levar good. on our podcast. Yes. At yeah. www.lifewritingpodcast.com. We had a great interview with with Levar.
0: Awesome! Awesome! People, check that out. Yeah, highly recommended, and, and that story was yeah very effective as well. So, all right, this was great. I, I super appreciate people taking the, t- all of you taking the time to come talk to me today. Thank and you. And the keeper, Alfred Abrams. Everybody can find that. Uh, we'll include links in the show notes to check it out. But thanks for your time. Thanks. So you so very time. welcome.